0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. In Psalm uh, 108. This is the end of our series in the Book of Psalms. And uh, over the summer, we start a new series in Jonah and what it is to be sent to the city next week. Um, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the psalms, these treasures that you've given us to teach us to pray, teach us to process emotion, teach us to handle the ups and downs. And today, Lord, I pray you would teach us and you would give us through this psalm courage as we learn and as we learn how to pray for courage when we need it. Uh, So speak to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So what is courage? Courage is standing one's ground and doing right regardless of fear and consequences. Courage is about putting something else or someone else above your own safety and honor. Courage is a virtue we greatly admire. Many of the great stories of our time and films have courage at the heart of them. Uh, for the kids, we think of Anna saving her sister Elsa from this sword of evil Prince Hans. We think of Desmond Doss, the, the conscientious objector who saved hundreds of lives on Hackshaw Ridge in the Second World War, just made popular this last year in a, in, uh, by Hollywood. We think of Frodo and Sam in the famous Lord of the Rings walking towards Mordor, the mountain of doom, and uh, facing enemies within and enemies outside, and doing what was right, despite the fear and the consequences. We can think of dozens of other characters from stories we love, characters who stood one's ground, did right, regardless of fear and consequences. We admire these people. We're inspired by the stories. However, cowards, procrastinators, compromisers, they do not inspire us or win our affection. Why? Because instead of seeing courage, we see self-preservation. So how do you get courage? Or more accurately, how do you become a person of courage who acts courageously when needed? The Christian message is not, we need to be courageous so that God accepts us because we're doing the right thing. It's that God has accepted us in all our cowardice and compromise. And he started a good work in us to make us into courageous people. And he's going to finish the work of making us, turning us from cowards to courageous people. So Psalm 108 is not, what do we do to be courageous? It's what he does in us. He changes us from the inside out. C.S. Lewis, in his last two chapters of Mere Christianity, his most famous book, said Christianity is not about being nice people, but new people. So God wants to make us new people who act courageously. And Psalm 108 says, How do we pray for what God wants to do in us? How do we join in with what God is doing in us? And it's going to tell us three things. It's going to tell us to pray for a worshipping heart, verses 1 to 5, that remains steadfast. It's going to tell us to pray for a trusting mind that claims the promises of God, verses 6 to 9. And it's going to ask us to pray for an empowered life that relies on God's strength, verses 10 to 13. So God wants to give us courage, and these are three things we can therefore pray for so that we naturally, instinctively become new people. Well, we, are, we, we, we embrace the new people that God is making us so that we can instinctively be courageous in the face of fear. Now, before I get into this, there's something very interesting about Psalm 108. Psalm 108 is not new material, it's two Psalms pieced together 57 and 60. So David, in the first five verses, takes Psalm 57, he wrote that previously, and in the second eight verses, he takes Psalm 60. So this is not new material, David is piecing together two old Psalms that he had previously written. Interestingly, Psalm 57 is when David is in great peril, he's in a cave, he's on the run from the jealous and the obsessed King Saul, he's crying out for help, he's trying to make God his refuge in a time of great fear. And in verses 4 to 6, listen to how he describes his enemies. Verse 4 of uh, Psalm 57, I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell amongst ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are, spe- are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse 6, they spread a net for my feet. I am bowed down in distress. They dug a pit for my path, but they've fallen it into it themselves. David is in great personal peril when he writes Psalm 57. In Psalm 60, it's not so much great personal peril for an individual. David, it's actually Israel as a whole nation experiencing humiliating corporate defeat. So it says in verse 1 and 3, you have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry, now restore us. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. God's people are defeated, humiliated. God seems to be against them. Here's what's interesting. Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, great personal peril, humiliating corporate defeat, Psalms of lament. The book of Psalms has got more lament than anything else. Protest, anguish, fear. Um, Trying to wrestle with God over suffering and tragedy. David takes two Psalms that are all about fear and lament and protest and turns them into a Psalm about courage. There's not a hint of fear in Psalm 108. What does that tell us? tells us two things, I think. First of all, Leanne's point at the beginning of the service. This is the pattern of the Christian life. God loves to turn the moments when we were weak and fearful and in danger and hiding in a cave. And that is the means by which he makes us courageous. It is life from death, joy from lament, dancing from mourning, our times of personal peril, our times of humiliation and defeat. If we will allow God in, can be the moments where he transforms us and makes us courageous. Your weakness right now could be the very thing through which God makes you a mighty person. That's the gospel. It's not what we do. It's what he does when we're weak. Secondly, this gives us a pattern for how to use the Psalms as a whole. What David does when he takes two old Psalms and reuses them is exactly what we're supposed to do. We're given a model for the Psalms with the guy who writes most of them. We are to take the words of the Psalms and so internalize them and so make them our own that we know how to pray given a new situation that we face, whether fear or joy or depression or excitement, whatever it is, we have words to pray. I say this every year in our summer series on the Psalms. The Psalms are like no other book in the Bible, maybe Lamentations and a few other Old Testament parts, but it, they are not words, they're words for us, not to us. It's hugely different. All of the Bible, by the Psalms and a few other places, is God telling us who he is and what his purposes are to us, instructing us, telling us, commanding us, promising us. The Psalms are words for us. Let me, God is saying, let me give you words because you're going to use them back to me. These aren't words to us. They are for us. So we're supposed to listen so that we can internalize and like David, put them together in another context and find words to express and channel our emotions just like a child when a child learns to speak just as christians when we learn to pray you start by mimicking the words you hear from more mature people and you listen how do they pray okay and then you and initially it's a bit clunky like a kid well, dad, dad, mama, you know. but then they learn to internalize and adopt the words and they end up having their own sentences and they end up relating to you with their words that were your words God says, I want my children to grow up in how to pray. I've given them 150 prayers to learn, to memorize, to internalize, to reuse. This is why the great saints of history all ran to the Psalms, whether depressed or facing battle, whatever they were doing. The Psalms were the place they drew their strength. So should we, if we want to be courageous people. So, a worshipping heart, point number one. God wants to make us, or he is making us courageous people. How do we join him in that process of what he's doing. How can we pray? We can pray for a worshiping heart. It's on your sheet there. Listen to how David starts. A psalm, a song, a song, a psalm of David. My heart, O God, is steadfast. I will sing and make music with all my soul. Awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples, for great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth here's my question. Would you sing if you're hiding out in exile in a cave with an obsessed king trying to take your life? How does he do it? It reminds me of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 who are in Philippi and they've done nothing wrong except proclaim the gospel of God and set a slave girl free and uh, the authorities don't like it and they put them in prison and Paul and Silas don't know what happens the next day. They don't know what fate awaits them, a trial, a beating, death. They're in prison for preaching the gospel in Philippi. How do Paul and Silas spend the night? One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, probably Psalms. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Would you sing if you're in prison for preaching the gospel in a foreign land and you're not sure of your fate in the morning? How does David do it? How do Paul and Silas do it? Here's how. They love something more than their own life, their own honor, their own reputation. They have a worshiping heart. They love something more than their own life, honor, and reputation. Remember I read those two verses, verse 4 and verse 6 from Psalm 57, the enemies, the anguish, the trials. David is wrestling. What does he say in verse 5? Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Like Paul and Silas, David loved God's glory more than his own glory. Or at least he was praying that he would. He's saying, Lord, I want this to be the case, or I'm praying that it is the case. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, puts it like this. David wonderfully looks up from his own urgent interests to his overriding concern that God should be exalted. In such a crisis, this equivalent to hallowed be thy name, was both a victory in itself and a weapon against the enemy. David says, I'm in a cave. I'm being hunted down by a king. Be exalted, God. May you be glorified. May your kingdom come. May your interest be above my interests. If he's not there, he's praying that he will be in such a place. Hallowed be your name. What, do, what does Paul say about five years after this experience in the, the Philippian prison? When he's writing back to the Philippians to encourage them, and uh, he's again in prison. Paul writes a lot of his letters from prison. That's how he had time to write his letters. And uh, he's, he, he's, he may be martyred. What does he say? I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed but will have sufficient courage that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. In other words, David and Paul loved God more than they loved their own lives. They had a worshiping heart. You want to be courageous? Pray for a worshiping heart. A heart that loves God above everything else, above your own safety, honor, reputation, career advancement, Nothing will scare you if you love God above everything else because nothing can separate you from his love. Courage doesn't come from trying to be courageous. Courage comes when you hold everything in this life loosely and hold only God tightly. No situation, no circumstance will ever ultimately scare you. You'll stand your ground, you'll do what's right because God is your number one. You want to be courageous? look deep into your heart and find out what you love. And be honest about it. And look at your desires and your idols and your counterfeit gods and the thing, and go, if I wasn't to love this more than God, I'd have courage in all kinds of situations. If my meaning in life wasn't this but God, I'd have courage in all kinds of situations. For example, if, you know, just obvious ones, if you live for people's approval, how are you ever going to be courageous? You're always going to go and bow down and serve the God of people's approval instead of bowing down and serving Jesus. If you love your job and career, how are you ever going to make courageous decisions of moral integrity in the workplace when required? If you love your security more, how are you ever going to be courageous with the gospel and sharing the gospel with people that might persecute you? If you love your bank balance, how are you ever going to be courageous with your financial decisions? If you love your comfort and ease, how are you ever going to be courageous around relationships? And so on and so forth. Do you see, true courage is not, I can do it. That's self-confidence. That's a vice, not a virtue. True courage is, this is more than important to me, therefore I don't mind what's going to happen to me. For example, in the animal kingdom, the mother undauntedly faces any size of foe, not because she thinks she can win, but for the sake of her young. David will face any foe For the sake of the Lord, because he loves him above all else. That is the secret of courage. You want to become a courageous person, pray for a worshiping heart that is infatuated, that loves God above all else. And it will be steadfast when all the other things around you may be fearful in human um, terms. But it's not just your heart, it's your mind. And the uh, heart and mind always need to go together. That's actually one of the things the Psalms are for. Take the truth from the head to the heart. But let's talk about the head. A trusting mind, verses 6 to 9, that relies on the promises of God. David goes on to say, save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken, remember that, from his sanctuary in triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, on Edom I toss my sandal, over Philistia I shout in triumph. The references are obscure, this is over 3,000 years ago in Israel, but, uh, and so it's a bit random these names, but Psalm 60, which David is reusing, remember, David is remembering when God gave Israel the promised land, the land of Canaan, and he divided it up, and he's listing some of the places, and he's saying who got them, and you see in verse 7, it says, God has spoken, so David is remembering a time back to when God spoke, when God promised, probably Deuteronomy 30, 31, and what he found was that promise became true in the book of Joshua, when the land was, they inherited the land, and it was divided up as God had promised, so God is going back at David is going back to God's word. When did God speak? And, when was that pr- and can I find a promise that was then fulfilled? And then in verse 9, he talks about Moab, Edom, and Philistia, who were Israel's enemies at the time, being under God's control and unable to raise a defiant cry against God's people because God is their helmet and their scepter. God's the protector, as he was back then. So do you see what David's doing? Verse 6. He says, save me and help me with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. It's a cry. It's a kind of, Lord, do something. And maybe his emotions are everywhere. Verse 7, what does he do? He runs straight to the promises of God. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In other words, he speaks truth to his feelings. David speaks truth to his feelings. He claims the promises of God, or he looks at the promises of God over his circumstances. If you want to become a courageous person with a worshipping heart that loves God above all else, you're going to have to get very good at speaking truth to feelings. This is actually a mark of maturity in the Christian life. If we listen to our feelings, we'll believe all kinds of things and we'll lack courage all the time. If you speak truth to your feelings, you'll find courage, perspective that transcend, transcend the circumstances and the current emotional state. It's a great lesson for every Christian to learn. The, Psalm is, the Psalms are full of it. The Psalmist is speaking truth. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Why are you downcast? He's speaking to himself. He's speaking truth all the time to himself. That he might hold the promises of God over his dire circumstances and speak truth to his emotions rather than let the emotions speak to him. That's what the Psalms are for. Lord, I've got all these emotions. I've got all these disappointments, doubts, frustrations. It just didn't go right. That person's against me. What do I do with it all? Run to the Sahams. Find a way of processing it and find a way of speaking the truth over what your body is saying or your mind is saying. You know, people that say to me, I don't like singing, I don't like going to church, or I don't feel like it, I should say. I don't feel like singing, I don't feel like going to church, I don't feel like going to city group, I don't feel like going to prayer and worship, I don't feel like, I don't feel, I don't feel, I don't feel, so I don't. They have no idea that they're a victim to their culture. The culture around us says, if you don't, if you feel it, do it. If you don't feel it, don't do it. You will never be courageous if you believe that lie. Of course you won't. You always thought your feelings, and your feelings are up and down if you want to become a person of substance, a person of courage, if you want to say no to the lie, the culture says that if you don't feel it, don't do it. Or if you do feel it, just do it. No, you need to, instead of being directed by your feelings, speak to your feelings. The Psalms help us get very, very good at skillful at discerning and speaking to our emotions. Emotions are not bad, but emotions are very good. God made us emotional beings. Jesus wept. Jesus sang songs of joy. Je- Jesus, the perfect man, had emotions, the full range. He was angry. But he learned to always make sure those emotions were channeled towards God and were never unrighteous and never led him into uh, a spiraling pit of despair. You want to be courage? You want to be a courageous person? You want to join God in what he's doing in your life? Learn to speak to your feelings rather than be directed by them. So God wants to make us courageous. First, by giving us a worshiping heart that loves him above all else, will count any cost for him. Secondly, by learning to claim the promises of God in dire circumstances when our feelings may be betraying us. And then it makes sense, once we've got our mind and our heart in place, that our life is empowered and that we lean on God's strength. Verses 10 to 13. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? God's saying, you know, Moses, David is saying, like, how am I going to go forward now? Is it not you, God? You have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies. Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God, we shall gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. As David thinks about moving forward, where does he look? Where does he hope? Where's his confidence? In himself? In his savvy? In his strength? In his connections? In his army? No, in God. Verse 12, give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless with God we should gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. Once you get your desires set on God, the heart. Once you get your mind, your thoughts set on God, the mind. Then you move forward with him empowering you for what you have to do. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is not a defeated life. It's an empowered life by the Holy Spirit. Leanne said, not what I can do, what's he doing in me? And we rely on his strength, not our own. In fact, the only prerequisite to God enabling you is to admit you can't enable yourself. Admittance of your impotence is the only requirement for the omnipotent one to come in and take over. The only way you'll find you can do it is if you admit you can't do it. This is the gospel, this is the kingdom, it's upside down. Pride is the only obstacle to God entering your life to empower you. Humility is the only prerequisite. So we've talked about the heart, the mind, and the life. But you see something else David says there in verse 11? The reason they were defeated in that moment in time in, in Psalm 60. Verse 11, is it not you, God, you have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Israel had disobeyed, had fallen into sin, and God had therefore turned against his people and re- withdrawn his blessing. And as they repented and returned to God, God would be their aid. So David is going, the problem was, We'd sinned and rebelled and God had become our enemy. But as we repented and we turned to God, he became our friend and our aid. And this is the dynamic ultimately that helps us all become courageous. That God himself was our enemy and becomes our friend. And when we know that friendship, we become new people. A thousand years later, another person would come, another man, and he would face great personal peril He'd be defeated and humiliated at the hands of his enemies, not because of his his sin, but because of ours. He was the ultimate man of courage. He loved you and he loved me so much that he would die for us. He would face the fear, he would count the cost, and he would go to the cross, not for our sin, but not for his sin, but for ours. He trusted the promises of God. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Feelings, emotions, emotions facing this dark hour, what does he pray? Not my will, but yours. He trusted the promises. Hallowed be your name, not mine. And then with the strength the Holy Spirit gave him, he endured the cross and faced all we deserved. How do you become a courageous person that desires God above all else? You look upon the most courageous man that has ever lived, laying his life down for you, to make sure you're safe, safe eternally, safe from death, safe from the enemy, safe. If the most courageous man who ever lived wants to make me safe and shows that by laying his life down for me, what do I have to fear? If God is for me, who can be against me? That is how God makes you courageous. That's how he wins your heart. That's how he renews your mind. That's how he comes into your life. David was a foreshadow of Jesus, the ultimate man of courage, who turned God from our enemy to our friend, and as you know that friendship, and as you sense him holding your hand, you will find you can do things you never thought possible, as in you're a new person. It's not you. Suddenly, a power has come into your life that you never expected or can understand, Jesus, the man of ultimate courage, died to save cowards and compromisers like you and me and to turn us into the most courageous people who should ever live on planet Earth. Do you remember the first century church? Book of Revelation written about 1890 AD. Emperor Domitian, a nasty man, tyrant, Roman emperor at the time, killing Christians all the time. How did the Christians face the dark powers of evil that the, the mighty, oppressive Rome represented at that stage. How did they live? Revelation 12, 11, They triumphed over him, the, the evil one, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. They'd understood God was their friend through Christ. And that blood meant meant they were safe. Nothing would harm them ultimately. And therefore, they were people of courage. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Each of us needs needs courage to get up tomorrow, to face the day, to be a Christian in 21st century Dublin, which is increasingly hostile to the Christian message. For a new job or an old job, a new relationship or an old one, there's challenges, there's health issues, there's a new baby on the way, there's... uh, what. There's moments when you go, I want to share the gospel and tell people about Jesus, but I'm going to lose social capital. They could come after me like wolves, and they will. Jesus promises it. Whatever it is, you're going to need courage. How do you become that courageous person? You look upon the one who is the ultimate man of courage who made sure that you were safe. Let me, the Christian message is not try hard to be courageous. It's admit that you're not. Come to the one that was. Take his hand and find a new power coming into your life. Let me finish with a few quotes from a book that might go on a bit longer today because it's so helpful. I did a gap year in Ecuador many years ago when I was 18 years old. And there's five famous uh, American missionaries who went to Ecuador uh, who are five men and their wives and then their kids were born. And uh, the five men were famously martyred for trying to reach the Orca tribe, which is in the heart of the Ecuadorian jungle. I went not too far from it many years later. And the Orcas were famously aggressive and hostile and would throw spears to kill people. And many people, some Catholic missionaries a couple of hundred years before had tried and they'd all been killed. And this group of amazing men and women, husband and wives, thought, We need to go and tell these people about Jesus. The most famous of the martyred men was Jim Elliot. And his wife, who I think died last year, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, has written a number of books. This one's called Through the Gates of Splendor that describe, uh, it's an amazing book about their their life. I just read it on a holiday. And um, uh, she writes in chapter 15, uh, the title of the chapter is Why Did the Men Go? You're going to a savage tribe that everyone says, don't go to, they're probably going to kill you. And she says, why did the men go? And uh, the wives are discussing it uh, together. uh, And she writes this. Olive Fleming, who is another of the wives, soon to be widows, remembered what she had read in Pete's diary of his willingness to give his life for the Orcas. I reminded Jim, that's her husband, of what we both knew it might mean if he went. Well, if that's the way God wants it to be, was his calm reply. Oh, it gets me. I'm ready to die for the salvation of the Orcus. While well, still a student in college, this guy's early 20s had written, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, gain what he cannot lose. Later in the same chapter, uh, it talks about the wives in advance of the men discussing as wives what it might mean to become widows. These amazing women, amazing women. Of courage. The other wives and I talked together one night about the possibility of becoming widows. What would we do? They go on to say God gave us peace of heart and confidence that whatever might happen, His word would hold. We knew that He who put us forth like sheep would go before them. God leading was unmistakable up to this point. Each of us knew when we married our husbands that there would never be any question of who came first. God and his work held first place in each life. It was the condition of true discipleship. It became devastatingly meaningful now. It was time for soul searching, a time for counting the possible cost. Was it the thriller adventure that drew our husbands on? No, their letters and journals make it abundantly clear that these men did not go out, as some men go out to shoot a lion or climb a mountain. Their compulsion was from a different source. Each had made a personal transaction with God, recognizing that he belonged to God, first of all by creation, and secondly by redemption through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. This double claim on their life settled once and for all the question of allegiance. And she ends her book by quoting Jim Elliott's diary from a time before. And, um, uh, and, and it gives us an insight into the, why they were courageous. And the answer is this, Psalm. they love Jesus. They just love Jesus. As the wife said, there was no question when we married them. They were for God's and God's work first above everything. They just loved Jesus. And the, the, the diary describes a time when Jim obviously went out, I think, while he was in Ecuador to, to, you know, to the amazing scenery in the jungle and the, and the stars and everything, and uh, just talked about his prayer life and his journaling. I mean, this is a man, he loves Jesus, and that's why he was courageous. Uh, It says this at the end of the book. For the wives and relatives of the five men, the mute longing of their hearts was echoed by words found in Jim Elliott's diary. Jim writes, I walked out to the hill just now. It was exulting, delicious, to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and heaven hailing your heart to gaze in glory and to give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy he shall give me a host of children. He hadn't had any kids at this stage. That I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies, whose fingers, uh, 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 finger ends set them burning. But if not, if only I may see him. Touch his garments and smile into his eyes. Ah, then, not stars nor children shall ever matter, only himself. O oh, Jesus, he burst into prayer. O oh, Jesus, master and center and end of it all, how long before that glory is thine which has so long waited thee? Now there is no thought of thee among men, then thou shalt be thought of nothing else. Now other men are praised, then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven, take thy crown, subdue thy kingdom, enthrall thy creatures. A man who loves Jesus is a man who can die for Jesus. Thank you for bearing with me. Do you want to stand? We're going to pray and we're going to sing. The Christian message is not go from here and try and be courageous. The Christian message is God is making you from a coward into a courageous person and we can join in that process. It starts by loving him above all else, claiming his promises and allowing him to empower us. Let's uh, take a moment to be silent. Andrew can start and uh, just think for a moment where you'd love uh, one of those three points, to love him more, to claim his promises over your feelings or to allow him and his strength rather than your own. Thank you.